Hey everybody and welcome to Rob Observations. I am Rob Leifeld. I am piloting this ship and keeping it aloft in the skies, avoiding the pratfalls of the dangerous cliffs and peaks and and forests and uh, and all the other stuff that you gotta maneuver when you're you're flying a craft as delicate as this podcast, right? Okay, so uh, hey, thanks for joining with me. Uh, as you guys often do, and I, I truly appreciate the opportunity to hang out with you guys. We are uh, going to dive into a couple of fun subjects today. Starting off immediately is a blind item. I love blind items. Uh, uh, the gossip columns used to just revel in them in the newspaper or uh, you know, such famous celebrity reporters like Rona Barrett. If you've never heard of Rona Barrett, man, she was... Uh, she was the uh, Johnny on the scene, Jill on the scene when it came to celebrity interviews, celebrity news breaks back in the 70s and the early 80s breaking up and then uh, growing up. And then, of course, Entertainment Tonight happened and and then Mary Hart gave us all the great entertainment news. But uh, blind items would often appear in uh, the LA Times that I, I read or, or, or um, different interview magazines. Sometimes I still see them with sports uh, sites and sports rep- publications. And, it, and it, it's it's when you don't want to give the names and I'm not going to give the names today. And it, it, it let, leads you, the fun of it is you go, huh, I wonder I wonder who's, who's being discussed here. I've done one previous blind item podcast. I, I forgot <laughs> the name of the podcast, but it was like an entire episode uh, of, of, of a, uh, a, a gentleman who had uh, taken work with me through an intermediary, an agent, and who at the end of the podcast, you'll find out, we we find out he didn't do the lion's share of the work that he had been signing his name to, or we had been told that was being generated by him. And we find, found this out because this gentleman and many of his studio mates came to visit my studios in person. And in front of myself and my editors, Matt Hawkins and Eric Stevenson, he presided to identify that he hadn't done any of this. It's what we had suspected, and that was a fun blind item. And 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 this blind item today is equally as crazy. I don't think I've ever spoken of it before, but it's a great way to kick off the show. It's it's not going to take too long, but it's uh, so so back in the uh, early days of Image Comics, the way that we. Uh, had kind of formed everything was these gentlemen's agreements, handshake agreements, just verbal agreements of how we were going to go about um, in in terms of mostly sharing characters and storylines for for existence, uh, for, for existence, for instance. Pardon me, it's, uh, it's I guess it's hot here in Southern California. It's it's getting to me. Um, for instance, when Eric Larson and I. Uh, when he had Savage Dragon battle Bedrock in issue three of his Savage Dragon miniseries, there was no paperwork drawn up. There was no legal arrangement that said Eric Larson will feature, you know, Rob Liefeld's Bedrock creation for no, you know, less than 10 pages. This is a one-time, you know, uh, uh, granting of the Bedrock license it shall not be reprinted. That's the kind of stuff that you get when you get into these different licenses and when there's an agreement. That wasn't the way it was with us. It was literally, hey, 
Rob, can I use Bad Rock? I, I think he's a cool character. I want to have him battle Bad Rock for the entire third issue. Yeah, cool. Do that. That's awesome. I'm excited. That's all there was, whether it was in person or on the phone. When Todd McFarlane used Chapel in uh, early issues of Spawn, because they we had um, come to understand through our kind of arrangement within the universe that we were all building. And again, this is back when the Image Universe had a real shared quality to it. And you would see our characters running around so many of the other books. I mean, Chapel and Al Simmons Spawn shared a history. They were both part of, you know, uh, a military kind of kill squad unit. And uh, they had a relationship. And Chapel, in, in the story as it was, was the guy who shot and killed Al Simmons, which then sends him on his path to hell where he then makes his deal with the devil and becomes Spawn. There's no paperwork for that. It was just, hey, you know, Rob, how about if Todd, if Chapel and, and Spawn have this history and I see what you've set up here, government, you know, uh, uh, kind of, Chapel's kind of a government uh, assassin, hit, hit, hit man, and, you know, what if we combine? It, it was great. We kibitzed it out, worked it out, talked it through. Next thing I know, Todd's drawn, you know, Chapel and a couple issues, and it's cool. Comes time for me to ask Todd, do you spawn inside of Youngblood? And again, it's like, yeah, bud, good, good to go. And we were good to go. And uh, Chapel and Spawn would appear in Youngblood. Similarly, there is no agreement between myself and Jim Lee in, uh, I don't know if it was Wildcats 3 or 4, help me out here, where uh, Wildcats and Youngblood are fighting each other. I inked one of the covers. Jim said, hey, I want to use Youngblood to defend the vice president here because he's the target of this plot by the Damonites in Wildcats, and, and, and I want Youngblood to be the obstacle that Wildcats has to fight through. Come on, who doesn't love a good superhero battle and conflict? And that's why we were doing all this stuff. So I said, yeah, Jim, that's great. There is no agreement. Again, uh, Rob Liefeld grants to Jim Lee, uh, you know, a a free license to use for one issue. This is the way this stuff, you know, reads uh, during the Heroes Reborn era where Jim and I were doing Captain America and, and Fantastic Four and we did that entire uh, uh, relaunch of the key Marvel characters. Part of that deal was that we got to cross over with the Marvel characters and so we did Spider-Man Bad Rock, Prophet Cable, X-Force Youngblood, Jim did Wolverine Deathblow, Wildcats X-Men, really fun stuff. That was detailed agreements. Those were very much because Marvel is a, at that point, a publicly traded corporation and uh, this is a good year before they would file bankruptcy. So they're a government, uh, <laughs> they're a publicly traded uh, corporation. And so we did indeed have paperwork that says, you know, uh, Rob can use uh, four Marvel characters with his extreme uh, characters and they will be, he can use them for a number of issues in a number of appearances. And uh, and that, that's how we went about it with Spider-Man. Spider-Man Bad Rock, it was a two-issue, you know, story broken up into two separate publications. They licensed uh, Supreme, who would battle Gladiator in a one-shot that they did. Uh, I did I did X-Force Youngblood. All that came with with, with very detailed uh, agree uh, legal agreements outlining 
how we can use these characters, under what circumstances, the term limits, all that stuff. Well, again, none of that was going on in the early image days. We were just having a good time. Hey, Jim, you want Youngblood and Shadowhawk? Great, cool, deal, let's do it. Hey, Eric, can I have Dragon in, in a Bad Rock episode that I'm doing? Sure, done. So, you know, there was no... Uh, there was no agreements. Just just cannot tell you how many times that we were just jamming. I had a team-up book called Bad Rockin' Company. It was my my version of a Marvel team-up, Marvel 2-in-1 type book that I grew up loving. And I believe, you know, Grifter and some other different universe characters were in all these different stories. And it was just a phone call. Hey, can I use? Yeah, sure. No problem. And with the usage always came the understanding kind of, you know, at least from my end, that you would grant to your, you know, if I'm borrowing Bad Rock, then of course, you know, you can borrow Savage Dragon, whatever, vice versa. If I'm borrowing Wildcats, you're going to borrow Youngblood at some point, Spawn Chapel, all of it, okay? So none of this involves the image partners, image founders, none of this blind item involves them because I've already outlined to you the circumstances with which we would horse trade. I mean, that, that's it. It was just like, hey, you want this? Okay, I'll take this. Okay, about this. And, you know, the, the, the proper thing to do was to show them in advance. Eric Larson would fax me pages of Savage Dragon 3 with Dragon battling Bad Rock. It was an honor to get these pages in advance and to see them and to know what was going out and not to be surprised. And we never violated each other's characters. You know, I'm not going to have, you know, Dragon committing some, you know, act of uh, an immoral act that, that Eric wouldn't agree with and, and Jim, you know, didn't have Youngblood members snorting cocaine off of each other's, you know, bellies. I mean, it, 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 it was in the spirit of, of the character and we honored that and we, were, we, we had a blast. And, and I know for a fact that you guys that were around at the time loved all the interconnectivity and, and there was so much of it. And by, by in, a, in a very short time, we all had so many different characters that that I was having Prophet team up with Bloodstrike, or you know, uh, Brigade battle Bloodstrike. So we had such vast universes that we were kind of now trading from within, and we were using our own characters. Wildstorm characters were teaming up with Wildstorm characters more than they were teaming up with Extreme characters or Savage Dragon or whatever. Because again, we just we just had a lot of toys that we could play with. I mean, I even did a Bad Rock Grifter series. And again, there's no paperwork. It was just, yeah, it's a nod. It was a gentleman's agreement. That's how it was done. And uh, I kept the money from my, you know, that, that was the other thing. The financial split, there was none. If I, it, it, I, I didn't see a dime from Savage Dragon 3. And when I used Savage Dragon in Bad Rock, Eric didn't see a dime. Again, it was just, we're having fun. It's the way you wanted it to be. It's it, it, if, if you, in your mind, were thinking that it was done you know completely in the spirit of fun and just jamming and have a good having a good time i can confirm to you right now that that is exactly how it happened and there's there was no kerfluffle for lack of a better word no kerfluffles it just was a really really good time until one day in this blind item this creator that i will not identify uh who who i had had dealings with positively, was uh, asked to have their character participate in a multi-chaptered kind of uh, event 
that I was doing at Extreme in, in, a, in a specific title. And his character was one of several characters that we were, you know, soliciting. And everyone involved uh, agreed on the same handshake, gentleman's terms, the horse trading that I've described to you for the last few minutes here. So we contacted this creator. This creator had a uh, person that he also worked with. They both signed off on it. So the owner of the creation, you know, agreed. And the uh, his, his partner in producing the book, who we were then told to be the point person, agreed. And so we went forth and we made the chapters of this event. So when you do a comic book, it's, it's no different now than it was then. We produced an advertisement that we would run in the previews catalog that everyone would order the book from. And we had preview pages. And I was I thought we really did a great job. We had some really good, talented guys get on board and uh, and, 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 and produce some really good... I mean, I, I thought the, the promotion stuff that we did for this book was really solid. And so it appears, not only do we produce the work, we show the work, the work gets approved, so much so that it goes into the catalog. As we've um, detailed here, and this will be really important for you guys to retain going into next year when I talk about a lot of Image Comics stuff. And I, I talked about some of it during the Heroes Reborn stuff in that when I was breaking away from Image, uh, you know, the, 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 the times and the dates don't match up from their end of how the story goes down because I was leaving Image Comics and soliciting my books in the catalog that had a three-month lead time. So so whatever happened, when I was forming my own, when I was pulling books out of Image and putting them into Maximum Press, which is what was happening, which, which, which is what infuriated a number of my partners at the time, uh, they, they, they cannot escape that the uh, that it wasn't something that happened after that. It was it was exactly that, and the timetable reflects it because you can't ch change the schedule of which this stuff is due to turn into the distributor because they have to have it in advance in order to put it in the catalog. So just look at the catalog, and if it's in the catalog, then jump back at least sixty days when it was submitted to them to get into the catalog. And so by the time the catalog comes back, that is a backtrack to it. And, and you can't skip those steps. The distributor can confirm, yeah, we, we had to go to press with the catalog. So the minimum time we received this information was five weeks before. So this, this will pertain when we revisit this again. And it actually, the catalogs are a great timestamp. They're, they're, they're the best evidence sometimes you can have. And, uh, you know, we celebrated the X-Force anniversary here on this podcast not too long ago. And again, that was advertised three months out. You were given the pages and the drawings and the trading cards to get you, the retailer, excited to buy X-Force. So in this instance, in this blind item with this creator, we had already drawn the ad. He'd approved the ad. The ad was handed in to the uh, to Diamond to run in their previous catalog. The catalog comes out. Okay, so now you're ordering the books. The books that you're ordering from the catalog aren't going to aren't going to ship. They're not going to arrive. They're not going to be in your hands for three months. This all speaks to the time that this uh, was was happening, lingered, you know, the time that it occurred, that it was obvious. 
Again, we had the approvals. We would never think of going through with something uh, if there wasn't an approval. And certainly, as you'll see, uh, the, 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 the process could have been stopped at any point given that we had solicited several creators to lend their creations for this purpose. Had they, you know, seen this ad, let's say, let's say we snuck it by them and it got into the catalog. They see the catalog and they go, hey, I didn't approve that. They then make a call directly to the distributor and the distributor stops the distribution of that comic until the dispute between the creators is settled. Diamond is not in the interest of tempting fates or tempting legalities. And what they have always done is they park this stuff to the side and they say, well, we understand it was in the catalog. We understand that it was going to come out, but you have raised protest to this. And as a result of the protest, we are not going to distribute it. There's a great example of this, and I'm, I'm going to be doing uh, a further uh, uh, series of episodes called Comic Book Feuds. And, and, and man, that some of them are the feuds that defined us. And we'll get to one feud later in today's episode. But the, the, the major feud uh, that is to come, that I will cover, is a feud that happened between, and I'm, I'm, I'm sidebarring real quick just to, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about with Diamond Comics. Mike Turner and Top Cow Mark, Mark Silvestri owned Top Cow and Mike Turner was launching a label called Aspen and they had a legal falling out and Top Cow solicit, told Diamond you can't distribute those items from Mike Turner's Aspen because we dispute ownership. We claim that we have a piece of those that we are not being uh, uh, granted our proper position on. This happened. This is you can you can Google this right now. I got the links today. I went back. I read. There were lawsuits fired, fired, filed. Aspen filed against Top Cow. Top Cow filed against Aspen. Michael Turner and Matt Mark Silvestri were in fact suing each other. This is this is part of historical data. During that period, Diamond would not distribute Aspen's product. They told Aspen because Top Cow has chosen to file a suit against you and has notified us of that suit that while your product made it into the catalog and is available for retailers to order and in, and, 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 and so much so in fact that there was a preview book that Aspen had printed that was delivered to Diamond to distribute but the week before that was to occur Top Cow filed you know, a grievance against them. And Diamond said, we will put this to the side until you settle it out. So that is why I'm bringing this, bringing this uh, very specific, very fresh subject to mind to back up. Don't take my word for it. Take history. Top Cow uh, filed against Aspen. And while it worked itself out between lawyers, Diamond parked Aspen's product to the side and said, when you figure this out, if this gets figured out, we will look to redistribute and put the books that you put in our pipeline back out. But at this point, the books that you have delivered to us are going to stay in the warehouse undistributed because Top Cow is contending against them. So I give this to you. I'm telling you of this because at any time that the creator in my blind item had seen something in the catalog that alerted them to this, they, th th this, this, 
this uh, alarming use of their character if that's how they felt. They could have merely contacted Diamond with just a, a legal like challenge, a letter that said that said, "Hey, we don't agree to this. We didn't um, qualify this. Uh, we are legally challenging Extreme or Rob Liefeld." Diamond would have parked the chapters of that book that uh, that we had produced, that that we had uh, received from what we understood the the uh, the understanding from from the creator to use. So so that it would have been that simple. We don't approve of this. Diamond then says these chapters don't go out until this is resolved, which would have put it on us to resolve it. But we did not need to do that because the chapters came out exactly as they were solicited, featuring all of the characters that we had received from our soliciting different characters, different creators to let us use their characters. So again, we had an event. We went to different creators. We asked them to lend us their characters. They all agreed. We got approvals. They signed off. We showed them every bit along the way what we were doing. We advertised it. It received ads, splashy ads. Those ads also ran in our books. The books were then published. It was part of a multi-chapter storyline. I believe it ran six chapters total. So it ran over several months and it was very well received and it came time for us to collect this. So what I've, I've, I've really gone to great lengths to share with you is that we got approval from each of the creators with these characters. We included these characters as we had advertised in these different chapters of this book in this cool story. And I was really proud of the work. I thought we represented all the characters very well. They were in the spirit that those characters had, had been represented to up until that point. And in fact, you know, I thought, I mean, I, again, we were super proud of how this all went down and the fans dug it. You guys dug it. This event was very successful. It was very fun. We released giant posters of this that we gave out at conventions. So I am just telling you the volume on this, this was not something that was hidden under a bushel. This was not something that happened in the shadow of night. This was bright lights, big city, um, big awareness. So, so this goes out. All these books get published. The chapters that featured this one particular creator's character come and go. Well, trade collections were becoming a big deal. So we decided to go forward and pursue a trade collection of this event that we had done. And so we even went so far as to issue a brand new cover for the trade. By that time, I think Extreme Studios, we had dipped our toes into about six or seven trades. And this was to be another one of them. So I think all total, maybe we did 10, 11 trades while while, while we were getting Extreme Studios off the ground. Uh, you know, and, 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 and this was going to be another new addition. I really felt that the long-term prospects of this was going to be great because trades were really, um, a really a big deal, really a big generator of, of revenue. And, 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 and the fans, you guys had really, uh, shown up and, and supported collected editions. Now we then advertised the collected edition of this. So long after, a few months after, it wasn't as quick of a turnaround as you do now. Now when the sixth chapter of something comes out, they're already soliciting, you know, the collection. 
You know, Marvel's got like the month the last issue comes out and you can order all six or seven or eight, 12 parts of this story that just completed because they want to get that while it's fresh. They want to reintroduce it to you while it's fresh, have you add it to your bookshelf while it's fresh. There was maybe a couple months lag time. There wasn't, it wasn't immediately at the end. So there's another couple of months, which really puts it at about nine months from the soliciting of the different creators to lend us their characters to publishing the event comic, the chapters, and to then now put it in the catalog to put it out as a trade collection. So I hope you have followed this. I have tried to slow it down and be very careful. Bottom line, we had an event. It featured creators, characters from other creators. They all agreed. We showed them along the way what we were doing. We never got a any adjustments and going all the way back to the beginning of this. It was in that gentleman's agreement. There were no written agreements. There were no, you know, uh, detailed arrangements. It was just, hey, can I borrow so-and-so? Yeah, you can. We had done this back and forth several times. We were old hats at this by this time. And again, you know, uh, late into uh, the, the image early era, like 1995, I'm doing Bad Rock Grifter. Okay, like I said, this isn't a partner issue. The partners were still trading right and left. So why the hell is this a blind item? Why have I been, 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 been protecting the characters, the creators? Well, here's, here's the deal. I am having cereal at my home, on my home phone. I'm, I'm called on my home phone in my kitchen, at the kitchen table, eating my Frosted Flakes. One morning when I pick up and it says, is this Rob Liefeld? I say, this is Rob Liefeld. Are you the Rob Liefeld that owns Extreme Studios? And uh, this is me. The guy said, I am this attorney. He identifies himself as an attorney. And then he, and he's very slick and he's very confident. He's very high energy, nervous. Talking, talking very fast. Hey, listen, let me tell you something. I'm going to promise you this. Let, let me make one promise, certainty to you right now. You are going to end up paying me. Okay. Let's just get to the end of how this all ends up. You're going to pay me one way or the other. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I just want to let you know off the bat, you're going to pay me one way or the other, because I am representing this party, which would be one of the creators that lent us their characters for this event. And, uh, he's, this attorney tells me that the creator is, is suing me for the usage, the un proper usage of their characters that I never had a written arrangement. Therefore, I, I violated usage of that character and that they are suing me and, and for a pretty, pretty handsome six figure amount. I just sat there eating my frosted flakes going, well, this is not right. We, we, we did this not only with his permission and with his approvals and also with his, um, his co-worker, I, 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 they, they marketed themselves as partners, his rep, whatever. We got double approvals. Doesn't matter. You don't have anything in writing. And uh, you should have never gone through with it. You should have never done it in the first place. So here's the deal. If you think this is a Rob Liefeld issue, let me quickly pivot that I learned that day that I was not alone. This creator had also lent his character to another image partner slash owner who had also used the character. They got a similar contact that said, we are suing you because you used this character without the proper, you know, paperwork. And it just all 
it, I mean, it, it rubbed us the wrong way, but more in an amusing way than a angry way. And, uh, and bottom line, I just said, I'm not paying you a cent. And the guy goes, you're going to pay me. Believe me, I'm filing today and you're going to pay me. You have to the end of the day to make this right and to come to terms and to write us a check. And well, we then attempted to contact this creator and were not able to reach that creator. We were then able to contact the, the partner, the uh, associate who had worked with us in making this a reality, someone who had been working hand in hand with this creator. This gentleman tells us, oh, that's a damn shame. Yeah, I'm sorry that's going down. I'll tell you why that's happening. Uh, So-and-so, the creator, was busted at the border with drugs and uh, has had their, you know, access to the United States denied and can't get to the United States. No more conventions, no more signings, uh, no more business. And is in is in fact in, in a lot of legal trouble in, in, in the, the place of this creator's origin. Well, that now suddenly gave me motive. You got You got a guy who's, um, on the wrong side of whatever's going on in his life. Maybe, maybe in, in a, in a, in a semi down in his luck situation, but it certainly didn't warrant contacting us via this attorney who was, of all the issues I've ever dealt with in, with attorneys, the most flippant, the most cocky, the most confident. So uh, I can just tell you really quick, it, I never paid a dime, but they filed against us three different times. And and the problem was uh, I had a a family attorney friend who said, I'll take this 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 case for you when when he heard me discuss this case at, a, at an event with my wife's family. And uh, <laughs> Larry, you know who you are. You're, you're a good guy. Larry said, I can handle this. Rob, this is easy. And so uh, he looked at where the suit was being filed. And uh, we made it a condition that this creator be present uh, in order to uh, enforce this, now knowing that this creator had no access to the United States. See, needless to say, uh, the, 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 the creator, uh, could not make it. And the, the case was dismissed. The case was dismissed. And this made this attorney furious who would then call my attorney and tell me, Oh no, 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 no. You guys just won round one, but I'm coming back for round two. They refiled in a different jurisdiction and, uh, tried to, uh, still in America because, because diamond, is the distributor of the comic and it had to be tied with Diamond's distribution of this comic. And so Diamond, whether it was Baltimore, Los Angeles, New York, it, there, it did not matter the venue that this person filed under in trying to ambulance chase me. Uh, they could not get it to stick because uh, the conditions of the, 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 the plaintiff in this case could not appear and defend the 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 clause. We we kept making it. Um, we we had a very compelling case. We had obviously several witnesses, editors, assistant editors, letterers, anchors. We had phone calls. Uh, we built a very strong case as to how this was a completely on the up and up legal uh, representation of this character. Which again, as I told you, at the time of publishing, at the time of promotion, at the time of 
the distribution, this was never, ever an issue whatsoever. Until it was. Until this person is hard up. Until this person is uh, is facing a, a certain difficulty. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it was so funny to me because three separate times this got tossed. We didn't, we didn't ever have a verdict rendered. It was so outlandish um, in, 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 in its inception that the lawsuit truly had no merit. And, and, and my, my attorney actually was laughing the third time that this other representative filed because he said, I can't believe this. I can't believe this guy's coming back for a third bite at the apple. But I have, uh, it took about a decade for me to see that this talent, this creator was now allowed to get back into the States and whatever issues they had. Um, I'm not, that, that what I spoke of, and especially I'm protected by saying this is a blind item, but this creator had, you know, been busted at the border with drugs. It created complications. And uh, back in the 90s, that carried with it a, a penalty. And so that creator was not granted access entry into the United States and had to stay in the port of call of their origin. So, but I never looked at this creator again the same. Uh, the partner made all sorts of excuses, admitted that it was a product of bad behavior, of desperation, and 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 a uh, and a complete violation of everything that we understood. Because to contact us and say you were never allowed to use the character in the first place, which was the position, because there there could be no other position. Okay, uh, the position was. For the, the position that they had backed into the complete, if I haven't said bullshit lie, was we never had approvals over this. Again, everything I, outlay, I laid out for you went towards our getting the case dismissed. The solicitation process, the materials in the catalog, the posters, the promotion, the actual publication of the individual chapters. So by the, by the time you're contacting us in regards to the trade collection and trying to collect damages for an an agreement that you claim that there was no, you know, you were not a party to, that's just completely dishonest. And, and thank God that it did not, you know, carry the day that, that, that the truth was, was, you know, borne out and, and that we were not held accountable in any way. It was truly as frivolous a lawsuit as I have ever been a part of. And it kind of sets the stage of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about feuds, because we're doing this celebrity feuds thing. And part of these celebrity feuds is unfortunately, you know, there's aftermath. Now in this aftermath, for me, I didn't counter sue. I didn't, um, I didn't do anything other than to shrug and move along. And my attorney, it was really um, about the honor of not being found guilty. And in fact, in this case, not having the lawsuit even have merit tossed out of three different jurisdictions, three different jurisdictions. And uh, so so that is one of the reasons why I don't believe you've ever heard about it because it didn't take flight. It wasn't granted merit. But uh, th 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 this is a, uh, a really interesting uh, uh, story that I've never shared, but I, I have never truly been able to look at this creator in the same way since because they know, as I know, how frivolous, deceitful, dishonest, and just what a lie the entire endeavor was. And sadly, you know, this was just 
the harbinger of things to come as more and more things kind of fell apart for this particular creator. But as a community, we're generally really nice and, and helpful to each other and, and, and help each other out. And, and it could have gone down so many different ways. And again, I can only speak to the fact that this was over, you know, 20, this is about a 25 year old story. And, and I didn't act on it in any aggressive manner in the aftermath. It was just move along and, and realize that we were our, our, you know, that our truth was what, you know, ultimately, uh, shone bright and, and, and carried us through. So there's a blind item from the past when, when kind of, uh, frivolous lawsuits go bad. And that, that's, that's one of the ugliest ones that I had a, uh, 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 a stake in, in its outcome. And I'm very happy that again, as I've shared with you, it, it didn't really go anywhere, but this, this industry, this comics industry, just like the music industry, just like the film industry, artists, when they get together, there's friction and sometimes things break up, things break apart. And that's where we're going to start doing some of these celebrity, not celebrity, these comic book feuds, because some of them um, really forged the future and the the reality that we live in right now to this day. And while perhaps the most famous feud is Stanley and Jack Kirby, with Jack finally asserting from his own position that he was fed up with a lack of credit, a lack of pay, a lack of uh, kind of acknowledgement of his creative um, contributions, that he was so much more than just a penciler. And Jack has had thousands and thousands of these pages that have seen print in, in the Kirby collectors and the Kirby, you know, uh, uh, historical, you know, archives. You've seen how when Jack would put so many of the different notations and ideas and scribbles, and then you know Stan and he would come to blows over how that was interpreted, and and then by you know Jack saying, "Hey, I I you didn't tell me to create this character with any specifics. I created somebody like Silver Surfer, which is what Jack has always maintained." Um, that 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 is perhaps the most famous and also the most fruitful in regards to uh, the fallout of that led to Jack going to DC Comics, creating the fourth world, what's called the fourth world, which involved the new gods, Jimmy Olsen, which which he didn't create Jimmy Olsen, but Jimmy Olsen became a conduit, a portal into this fourth god world that included the new gods, uh, the forever people, Mr. Miracle, later on down the line with DC Comics Commandy, the demon, Omac, and, and so many, uh, you know, just different one shots that, that, that Jack did during his time. Cobra, the villain Cobra, um, so many different contributions. Jack went over to DC and he flexed. He's basically like, I'm more than just what I did at Marvel. And I'm always kind of really, uh, it's an easy equation to me. If there's a breakup of two, uh, of, of a creative team and the one guy goes off and, and continues to produce an enormous amount of fruit on his tree while the other tree kind of dries up and dies, you can kind of go, well, this article, this this kind of seems to be settled. This guy seemed to have been, without a shadow of a doubt, the driving force behind this creative endeavor. And Jack was absolutely uh, inspired to move forward and to prove, I am not just the FF and all those characters and the X-Men and the Avengers and Thor and Captain America, which he had created with Joe Simon that, that Marvel got the rights to. And he and Stan collaborated on it. I mean, obviously Stan and he did so much, but after thousands of pages and hundreds and hundreds of issues, 
Jack left. That's the most famous, the most well-documented. But the reason I was really focused on these comic book feuds is I ordered this really nice, I didn't know how nice it was going to be, but I, I put in an order for this brand new uh, collection from Marvel under their Marvel Made banner, Marvel Made. And it was the launch book Marvel Paragon collection. Now, it was kind of produced in a, in a, in a not, not quite a, a crowdfunding platform, but it was online. You, you followed, you know, the, the line would keep shifting across the screen until they hit the goal. There was a goal that they had to hit. X amount of orders, X amount of money raised for Marvel to pull the trigger and make this Paragon collection from Marvel made. This is the Chris Claremont Paragon collection, collecting all of my favorite. Once again, I think I've said many times on this show, I have bought so many of these X-Men collections again and again and again. This may be my 10th edition collecting Dark Phoenix, the Dark Phoenix Saga, collecting Days of Future Past, collecting the Frank Miller Wolverine miniseries. Um, it just, it, it, it came with a lot of bells and whistles. There's five different artistic brand new plates, Art Adams, um, Salvador La Roca, uh, you know, I, I, the other names fail me at this time, but really some handsome uh, uh, portfolio plates. Uh, and and then new editions of several comics, Wolverine number one, the Claremont Miller with a brand new Steve McNiven cover, Days of Future Past with a new Olivier Coipel cover. Um, just all these different bells and whistles, the certificate. I, I was, I bought completely into it. The a leather bound, beautiful edition, uh, collecting all these stories I told you, um, which were the highlight of the Chris Claremont, John Byrne run that, you know, if you've listened to this show, had a profound impact on my life. Well, uh, Chris Claremont writes recollections at the end of, of, of the book of each of the stories that were reprinted. And if you can hear these pages, this is me once again, flipping through, checking out, um, and, and reading these recollections, uh, that, uh, that, that Chris writes, uh, when it comes to the Dark Phoenix saga, the, the, the official, um, Paragraph ahead is, it says, a long-running Jean Grey plotline begun by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum and continued when new penciler John Byrne came on board X-Men culminated with the series of stories that have come to be known as the Dark Phoenix Saga. Claremont and Byrne shocked fans with the sheer cosmic scale of this truly industry-changing epic and its heartbreaking conclusion, which, while different from the ending the creators originally intended, was nonetheless stunningly realized. Uh... In this, uh, Chris just talks that John and he were were thwarted in their original ending, and he says, uh, li literally, as to the changes that they were forced to make by, by Marvel editorial and Jim Shooter, you know, in particular, it says, you know, Chris says, you know, that, that the editor, the editorial staff thought that it was brilliant, John Byrne less so, but that's a total different story. So he, he really barely touches on any... Um, friction that John and he had been having. Then when it comes to the masterpiece that was Days of Future Past, and the reason, one of the major reasons it's a masterpiece, it was told in literally 40 pages. It is a two-issue epic masterpiece. It was the first twist of its kind. It was, the, the only twist I had seen prior to this was on like the Twilight Zone with To Serve Man. Like, it's a cookbook, it's a cookbook. That big reveal when the scientist yells up and, and tells everybody getting on the, the flying saucer with the aliens that, you know, this is, this is you know, th they're not here to help us. And, and by boarding the, the 
spaceship you're becoming their food, that this is a cookbook to serve man. It's ways to serve man as food. So other than that twist, I hadn't really encountered any by the time I was 12, which is when I picked up Days of Future Past, the stuff in Cameron's Terminators and all the other cool twisty turns years ahead of M. Night Shyamalan's, you know, all of his twisty, turny, whether it's the village, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable. Days of Future Past had one of the all-time greatest twists and turns ever. But in, 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 uh, in, 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 you know, bringing this recollection, it definitely, look, this is Chris's book. This is Chris's book. It's his Paragon collection by Marvel Made. This handsome leather bound, okay? It says, Byrne and Claremont's X-Men collaboration came to an end with a few months of the climax uh, of the Dark Phoenix saga, but they still found time to produce another timeless classic that ranks most the acclaimed, the, among the most acclaimed comic book stories of all time. Building on the hate and fear towards mankind that was the defining theme of Claremont's run, Days of Future Past introduced the enduring idea of a dystopian future for Homo Superior that the X-Men must constantly fight to avoid. It inspired the blockbuster film X-Men Days of Future Past. Um, and Chris writes and says, we, he and John, had a pause for breath right after Jean Grey's death with the funeral issue and then the Wendigo issues. And then suddenly, boom, Days of Future Past. It's like, surprise, you really have to pay attention to this book because we aren't farting around. And for me, that is exactly what comics, what any serial storyteller has to be about. It's not just doing a great story. It's doing a great story and then hot on its heels, hot on its heels, doing a better one. The whole point is reaching out and grabbing the reader by the scruff of the neck and saying, pay attention, we're serious here. You can't take this book for granted. You can't take the characters for granted. Good things will happen and heartbreak will happen and we're going to make it as fun as humanly possible, but you cannot afford to not pay attention. It's a great, that, that is as inspiring as it sounds. I was inspired reading it. I'm inspired repeating it out loud. It really doesn't deal with the fact that John Byrne left immediately after that this was it for John Byrne. He did one Christmas-themed issue afterwards, and that was it. And if you look around of, of the time, and you know that I have said this often, and I will repeat it again, I am of the time. Right there, Marvel, in their own publication, talks about how stunning both these storylines were. I mean, they, together, the Dark Phoenix saga is years. It's years' worth of masterful storytelling. And then when two with two issues... Just three months later, a double punch of Days of Future Past and then literally a Christmas farewell issue and John Byrne is gone to never be seen again. They were the John McCartney. <laughs> oh man, it is hot in Southern California. They were the John Lennon and the Paul McCartney of comics. A lot of people say it was Stan and Jack. I would say equally that what Chris and John did was as um, impactful, as stunning, as... as uh, as, as inspiring. Recently, the uh, longtime executive editor, Tom Brevoort, he has a blog that I read. It's, 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 real, it's great fun. It, it's it's kind of like this podcast, except in blog form, he talks of his, uh, his love of comics, the same period, this Bronze Age. Sometimes he delves into what he was experiencing as an editor, but some of it, so much of it is from a fan perspective. And he recently uh, was offering up some, some different... Uh, Examples of how Days of, of, of Death of Phoenix was changed in the end. And the following issue, the funeral issue, which I happen to own several pages from, he was talking about how they were, the, John had already started drawing the next issue. So that once they decided to change the Death of Phoenix and actually kill her, that she didn't just get away with it as they had originally planned, that she, they, the X-Men didn't win and champion and return to Earth, that the editor said, she has to pay for this. You're either putting her in prison or she's dying. They ended up killing her because as Chris has said 
the alternative was the X-Men would never stop until they tried to break her out if she was in some galactic prison, which is a great follow-through of thought and, and would have made some really fun stories, by the way. But they killed her. John had to start redrawing different aspects of issue 138 because it wasn't a funeral issue. It was a recollection issue of the history of the X-Men because now Jean Grey has been mind-wiped. That was their original, that they were going to wipe her mind and return her and that she would never have remembered who she was. I have several of the pages that have the patches. I've put those original pages up to the bright light of a lamp, uh, uh, of, of the sun bright through the window to see exactly what's underneath them. I have some diehard, I will call them lunatics, who don't own these very valuable pages as I do, say you should have those panels removed, you know, and by, by, by an expert, you know, uh, uh, by, by, a, by someone who, who, who in, it, it utilizes their craft and in, you know, restoration of combo pages. And I've seen what's under the, uh, what's underneath the panels. And they are indeed indicative that there was something else going on, that Jean Grey was alive. She's walking around the grounds with Scott talking, but instead there's a close-up of Scott's face that has been penciled by Byrne and inked by Austin and pasted over the original. This happens on several of my pages. I happen to have owned them. I not have owned them. They are in my possession now. I'm not going to compromise the page for historical you know, these people tell me what they're, they, they plead the, the, the right of historians. We're histor we, in, the history, in the interest of history, you need to show us and have, have the true panels displayed. Well, that's not going to happen. Not, not, they're, 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 they've been with me a long time. They're going to remain in my possession. But the point is, Tom Brevoort, in discussing these pages and these alterations of these pages that I own, he doesn't mention that I own them, but I know as I'm reading this that I actually own them. And, 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 and I wanted to very much so you know, take snapshots of what I've seen underneath the panels, you know, up against a really bright lamp and send it to them. But he said that when Jean Grey died and the end of the Dark Phoenix saga, it was when the book went to thermonuclear status with fans because it was unsafe. And so John is very, Chris is very, uh, uh, very on point when he says, we wanted to make you certain that you could never ever be safe and you always had to pay attention to this book you couldn't take any anything for granted and you couldn't take any time off but here's the deal john byrne he loved doing the x-men and the art of john byrne and the x-men companion and and the comics journal number 57 which is my favorite interview with any creator ever details again and again how much john byrne loved the X-Men, he, he, he claims he created Kitty Pride and inserted her. We know he created Alpha Flight. Vindicator, later to be known Get Guardian, was a product of John's creation. In this comics journal interview, the, the, the interviewer, Peter Sanderson, who is like literally, you know, a, uh, a, 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 a Marvel historian, you know, says, why do you love Wolverine? And, he's, and, and John says, because he's a homicidal maniac, just flat out because he's a homicidal maniac. He says, Wolverine's increased relevance is because I put that attention there. Dave Cockrum didn't even like the character. I loved him. He, the character's from Canada. I'm from Canada. So he poured everything he had into giving you the best he had. And John Byrne on the X-Men was somebody who was flexing, flexing as hard as I've ever seen an artist flex. And, 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 and that work stands the test of time because it was, it's like a great song. It's like, it's like, you know, any of the, the Beatles, Revolver, Sergeant Pepper, um, 
it stands the test of time. The music is as good today as it was then. It stands the test of time. And, and, and it's because the craft behind it was so strong and, and the, the creators behind it were so passionate. But there were rifts along the way. John was not getting the credit that he felt that he was getting. And he believed that, that what he was pouring into the book was being counteracted. Because in the Marvel method, and that's what this was called, the Marvel method. Now, again, when I am writing New Mutants and X-Force, I the Marvel method is skewed somewhat because I'm providing the story and the art. So I'm writing the plot and drawing the plot. The plot is the story. The story is the characters, the conflicts, the situation, the locales, the story, and the plot. They're the same thing, story, plot. John and Chris, like as I understand from all the interviews, Marvel Wolfman and George Perez, who had a much longer, much more enduring, much more tolerant uh, relationship uh, uh, with the Titans just because they did so much more. They would all talk on the phone. John Byrne talks about in his comics journal interviews the, 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 the size of the phone bills that they were handing to Marvel Comics. And, uh, and he talks about the manner with which uh, that he and, and, and Chris would 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 co-plot each issue. And and he does it really, I mean, again, this is, he's still, he is drawing the X-Men as he gives this interview in the summer of 1980, published in the summer of 1980. This interview was probably done several months earlier, probably in the winter or the spring of 1980, published in the summer of 1980, Comics Journal number 57, the John Byrne cover, John Byrne Unleashed, a four-star extra special interview with the artist of Captain America, the X-Men, the Avengers, and more. Okay, now, there's a pull quote in here. It's a pull quote. It's so powerful. My phone bill last month, this is 1980. My phone bill last month was $900, and that was entirely talking to Chris Claremont. That's a pull quote in the middle of the interview on page 78 of this Comics Journal uh, issue, which, which Comics Journal was one of the best interview magazines you could ever possibly you know, desire. It gave so much room, so much space. Creators just talked and talked and talked. Um, but in in the context of this uh, this 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 interview, John is talking about how he and Chris create um, create stories and how they create the issues that we have all come to know and love and adore. And. Uh, and, and John is is almost, I mean, th this interview, I won't go into it, but he, he he's so comfortable and so um, uh, 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 he realizes exactly how popular he is. Uh, that So much so that he takes on just a whole bunch. He, he talks trash. It's the great, it's one of the all-time greatest trash-talking interviews of all time. I think I've mentioned it one or two times before, but he is, it is one of the all-time greatest trash talking interviews he goes after creator after creator after creator because he is well aware that the entire uh comics industry is his like he owns the comics industry at this point he i won't even name all the creators he goes after it's 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 a lengthy lengthy list and uh and and he is uh he is very liberal in in how he uh he takes he takes his he talk. He takes his his shots, and uh, and he talks along the way that uh, about Kitty Pride, that she's you know 
um, that, that he designed her to have the physique of a 13-year-old and, and she should be portrayed in, in such a manner. And, and he talks about his uh, the fact that, that it was his idea to give her the Jewish heritage that she had. Um, and, and, uh, and, and he says, you know, that, that in, in regards to working with Chris Claremont uh, and, and the way that they talk, he says, uh, there will probably, this is John Byrne talking to Peter Sanderson, when Peter Sanderson says, working with Claremont, as much as you do, do you see any of his work in your own writing? Okay. And he says, uh, I think that there probably would be bits and pieces of Chris's style that would turn up, but the writer who has influenced my style the most, I think, who 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 has most consciously contributed to how he writes is Len Wein. And uh, and then he goes on and he talks about how how much of a fan that he was of Len Wein's writing over the years. And uh, by this time, you got to understand, John and Chris have done an entire run on Iron Fist. They have done an extended run on Marvel. Um, Marvel Marvel team up and and so then they segued they did a Star Lord special and then they segued of course onto onto uh onto the X-Men and and John Byrne gives like a three-page answer about Wolverine in this and how he saw him as Dirty Harry and he says uh you know he he, he said he it, it, when when um when the interviewer says how did you come to draw the X-Men? And he says, I was a big fan of the X-Men from number one. I liked what Chris and Dave Cockrum were doing. And I was informed that all by all the editors at Marvel, I informed, he says, I informed all the editors at Marvel that if and when Dave leaves, um, they should give me the book. And, uh, and, and, and Byrne says, it was my basic threat to everyone. That's, I really wanted the book. And they said, uh, the interviewer says, was there anybody else that was up for the book? And, and Byrne basically says something derogatory about another artist that I won't, um, repeat, but he says, uh, he says, I came on with issue one, 108 and there were about 468 characters in the story. They were scattered across the plane. Most of them were this parody version of the Legion of superheroes. I never followed the Legion myself and I had no idea who these clowns were. And then I did my usual freeze up for the first issue. Really, it was insane. It was four or five issues before I felt I was doing anything with the book, the circus issue. X-Men 111 was the first issue where I felt I was putting my imprint on the book. I, I, I uh, suggested to Chris that we use Mesmero as the villain and we lead into Magneto. And uh, and, he, and the interviewer says, how long did it take for you to know that the characters you as you know them now in terms of personality style drawing? And he says it was unconscious um, in the first year and probably more on the book. I was consciously thinking this is Nightcrawler. This is how he stands. This is how he walks. This is how he moves. And he says, uh, the interviewer says, I, I think your first issue of the X-Men was a little stiff. And Byrne says, it was very stiff. And the second one was stiff. And in my second issue, I had a shot of Nightcrawler standing upright. That's something I would never do now. And he says, I did I, I did it deliberately to, to, to convey a certain emotion. But if I was doing the scene now, I would find another way to do it. Then the interviewer says, why is Wolverine your favorite? Two reasons. I love his grating, nasty, son-of-a-bitch personality. And I love the fact that the, he is the first real Canadian character in comics. And he's not bland. He was also the least developed character when I took over the book. And whenever I take over a book, I pick a character to be my character. A character that I can play around with and do things and do things with. When I took over the Avengers, I picked Scarlet Witch for two very obvious reasons. He goes on and the interviewer says, uh, you made Wolverine more ferocious more ferocious when you picked it up. He says, bigger too. I don't mean taller, just physically bigger. Dave's Wolverine was a slight, skinny guy. 
I looked and said, this guy would never last five rounds with the Hulk as he did in his debut issue. No way. I beefed him up. And I suggest a whole score of things about how his powers work, what they are, where they've been, revealing a little bit at a time. The interviewer says, I, I heard you speak at last year's Chicago Con about the origins of Wolverine. Is this something you're eventually going to do in a future issue of X-Men? And he says, it will, unless it's changed or we come up with something better. You see, we're already on our second origin for Wolverine. The first origin that was con concocted was that he was actually a mutant Wolverine boosted up to human form by the high evolutionary. Okay, that works, except Archie did a similar number in the first Spider-Woman story. And no matter how things have changed in the strip since, that idea has been done before. So we dropped it. Unless we change our minds in about a year, we have an origin story well worked out now. All sorts of details about how he obtained his adamantium bones. And he says uh, why he seems to heal so quickly, why he's so much older than he looks. I don't know if all of those facts are going to come out all at once or in that order. Most of the fans I've talked to and most of the males agreed. They like picking up the facts in dribs and drabs. One of these days, Rogers and I have a Captain America story that we'd like to do. It guest stars the X-Men, where Cap will be talking to a couple of them and Wolverine is real quiet at first and then he finally speaks. Cap will do a take and say, Corporal Logan! Because you see, Cap met Logan during the war. And that might be the first time in one of the books we come out and say just how old this guy is. There's a sequence coming up, which I hope we will do, where Wolverine will be meeting his father, who is Sabretooth. There will be a big fight, and he will kill him on camera. And there will be no doubt about it. But this is what Shooters calls a big fucking deal, a BFD. Which I hope will be printed with asterisks, because I don't use that word often. Um, here's the deal. You guys, right here, 1980, he tells you. John Byrne is telling this interviewer that he has this idea for a Captain America Logan story that reveals that they fought together in World War II. In the Chris Claremont Paragon edition, they reprint the Jim Lee, uh, the, 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 the Jim Lee uh, X -Men, Uncanny X-Men 268. It says, in 1990, Claremont was joined by the latest in a long line of artistic collaborators who would achieve superstar status on Uncanny X-Men and welcomed Jim Lee on board as new regular penciler. Uh, it's a wartime, Logan's first wartime meeting with not only Cap, but also a young Natasha Romanoff who would grow up to be the Black Widow. Um, Chris says, so here we are back in time with Logan and Cap. It's one of my favorite punchlines. Cap saying, you know, Logan, we work well together. And Logan is like, Cap, I'm sorry, I don't need a sidekick. This is Chris Claremont talking in this, in this commentary in the back of this Chris, Chris Claremont Paragon edition by Marvel Made. You know, Logan, we work well together. And Logan is like, Cap, I don't need another. I don't need a sidekick. I was thinking it would be amusing for Cap to be uh, Logan's Bucky and not the other way around. It'd be a, it would be a fun story to do where Logan meets up with Cap again, and who knows what they were do they were doing during the war. Maybe they ran into, in, into each other more than once. There are all sorts of opportunities, given the nature of the characters, the histories, the personalities. You guys, th th this 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 gives no um, acknowledgement to what John is is telling you. Uh, you know. Uh, 41 years ago, okay, in 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 this in this comics journal super special, so so there was friction. John goes goes on to outline, uh, and 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 really make a point of letting everybody know what 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 the ultimate uh, backbreaker was between him and John, and it's it's not um, it's not terribly uh, uh, it, it's not a mystery, in that. Uh, if you go to um, why did John Byrne leave the X-Men, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, 
it's outlined. It's it's all over the internet. You can read it, and uh, and it, it says uh, that um, that John had uh, had quit the X Men through disagreements with Chris Claremont over a, a, a very long extended period of working together. That it just it it, it had just uh, it had just built up to this this general um, kind of disagreement. And and John told the Sci Fi Channel. Sci-Fi Wire in 2014, he gave a lengthy interview, and again, so you're not hearing my word, you're hearing his. And it says, for more than a few comic book readers, it doesn't get much better than the epic run Chris Claremont and John Byrne shared on the Uncanny X-Men in at Marvel in the late 70s, early 80s. The four years they spent together chronicling the adventures of the Children of the Atom produced some of the most beloved Marvel comics of all time, including the Dark Phoenix, Proteus, and Days of Future Past. And... More than 30 years after their collaboration on that title ended, it is still considered among the best partnerships, not just in the history of the X-Men, but the history of superhero comics. Again, this is Sci-Fi Wire, part of Sci-Fi.com in 2014. So now we can say it's 40 years later, not 30. It says, behind the scenes, though, producing such legendary stories wasn't easy. Shortly after taking over as artist, Byrne began co-plotting the uncanny X-Men stories with Chris Claremont and greatly influenced the book and its many characters. Are you happy that Wolverine is such an integral part of the X-Men even today? Thank John Byrne. That's this article saying this. The collaboration was fruitful but not without struggles and disagreements over the directions of the books and the characters. One aspect of the partnership in particular seems to have really gotten to John Byrne. He had a hand in determining the book's plots, but scripting duties were Claremont's alone, and he didn't write the book's dialogue or captions until after Byrne had penciled. This is a variation of the Marvel method made famous by the likes of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, giving him essentially the final say Claremont, the final say on how the characters and situations were presented. This would have been fine if it weren't for the fact that Claremont's final script sometimes portrayed characters in ways John Byrne hadn't intended, and it was one such instance of words being to, being at odds with art that finally drove John Byrne off the book. December 1980, take a look at these two pages from Uncanny X-Men 140 and see if you can just spot the disparity. It's a brilliant John Byrne splash page of Colossus quite effortlessly pulling a trunk of a tree out of the ground, just ripping it right out with a chain. He's got the chain around the trunk and he's ripping it out. Uh, Byrne made the removal of the stump look very easy for Colossus, but Cla Claremont gave the character dialogue, and, and I'm telling you, like, like, like lots of dialogue, lots of captions, that made it sound that this was very difficult for Cla Colossus to achieve. It's a minor difference relatively, but for Byrne it was the last straw and it was indicative of a number of incidents. He decided it would be the last. In John's words, every issue there would be what I called an ARG moment when I came across something Chris had written that went exactly against what I had drawn or what we had agreed upon plotting the book. The cumulative effect was numbing, to say the least. Here I went ARG on the very first page. Burns says, can you tell why? Specifically, it was the way I had drawn Colossus, easily ripping the stump out of the ground, replete with flying clumps of earth and speed lines, versus the way Chris scripted it. I saw the page printed and threw up my hands, and I said, I can't do this anymore. I called my editor, and I resigned that day. He went on to finish his remaining three issues, which the immediate following issues are Days of Future Past, which has already been something they had agreed to, and do the final Christmas issue with Kitty battling an alien that very much resembles the alien in Alien. And, uh, and, and, and literally, here, here's, here's my side commentary. Having collaborated and been collaborated and been frivolously sued, that, that, you look at that, that one reason John Byrne gave in terms of comic book feuds. And uh, <laughs> that, 
that's not why he left. It was everything building up to then. It wasn't just about a tree stump. It was about years of John and Chris agreeing to do something one way. John, John talks about a Captain America Logan meeting in 1980. Wolverine is given extra attention because John Byrne wants it. Chris had several years before John on the book with Dave Cockrum. And Wolverine was a, was not anywhere near the importance. Again, when that writer says to you, thank John Byrne, in one of these interviews, in the Comics Journal, in the X-Men Companion, they say, would you do a spinoff of Wolverine if it was offered? And he's like, well, I, I sure I would. It, it It's, you know, I feel like it, I'm responsible for why the character is so popular now. I, I would love to. Again, we, we know that, that Chris did that with Frank Miller. When, when John leaves the book, he takes on the Fantastic Four. He creates Alpha Flight. He does a year on Captain America. John Byrne, it almost seems out of spite. And that Fantastic Four run is one for the ages. It is, if you've never read it, read it. It is epic in scope, in scale. It is the best versions of Reed and Sue and Johnny and Ben that I have ever read. It is fun. It is It is deep when it needs to be. It's light. Um, Reed Richards goes on trial for killing Galactus um, because of Galactus, what Galactus means to the galactic ecosystem. It's really, really super smart, action-packed, brilliant, new, all new um, um, heralds for Galactus. Um, some of the best Doctor Doom stories I've ever, ever read. This breaking them up is like what happened with McCartney and Lennon in that we got a whole bunch of great individual albums from both of them. They never again returned and, and worked together. But what we got was great Paul McCartney material and great John Lennon material right up obviously till John's assassination. But this feud resulted in Alpha Flight, John peeling off Alpha Flight that he had introduced in the fa in the pages of X-Men over a period of, of a couple of years, first with Vindicator and then Sasquatch, Snowbird, Shaman, you know, uh, uh, the North Star, Aurora, and eventually Puck. And Alpha Flight was a huge seller for Marvel. And, and John uh, became a creative tour de force. And, and in another comic book feuds, we'll talk about how shortly after John leaves, because he now has dominion over the Fantastic Four world, Chris Claremont, in the first storyline that brings Dave Cockrum back, because the one thing that really helped, and I was there, I know this, I was a kid, bringing Dave Cockrum back to follow John was a perfect con continuation. Dave Cockrum was there with Giant Size X-Men, brought it back to life. You know, th this is guys like myself, we fell in love with that version, but then he couldn't keep up with the schedule. They replaced him. Archie Goodwin had John Byrne and Terry Austin take over the book. It goes on to new creative heights, changes the world. Like Tom Brevoort said, the death of Phoenix just rocketed it, the, the, the book into new levels of popularity because it was so, it was such a head-scratching um, page Turner mystery, um, almost a betrayal. The book wasn't safe. These guys just created something spectacular. But then bringing back Dave felt like, oh, and John actually, John actually rails against in uh, in this interview uh, towards the end. It's it's the the X Men Companion. A, a, if you can get these, they were they were they were printed in 1982, and it's got a great epic epic. Uh, John Byrne interview from the time, and he expands more on the ways that he had um, intended to depict Wolverine and, and Sabretooth. But but John was the, 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 the guy who was controlling Dr. Doom, and Chris Claremont in his first Dave Cockrum story with Dave Cockrum coming back just a month or two after John Byrne leaves, because there was one fill-in. They used Dr. Doom, and, and John was able to get the last word because he didn't like how Chris uh, how Chris portrayed Dr. Doom. So, like, Literally, you guys, 
this feud would go go on. And I'm going to tell you in all these feuds and everything that I share with you as we do this series on feuds, you're going to see that sometimes it's an absolute fuel, a fuel that just um, fires up maybe one or both parties to do even better work than they were prior. They were doing prior, okay? Because because they feel slighted. John Byrne left X-Men because he felt slighted. U ultimately, he didn't like the way that relationship was working out. And then he went on to prove, I can do this myself. Fantastic Four did surge. Sales went back up to record levels. Alpha Flight was a giant uh, book outselling X-Men at one point. By separating Claremont and Byrne, we ultimately won. Could, would I have taken another couple years on X-Men? I would have. But that wasn't in the cards, so I have to deal with what I did get, and what I did get was a whole lot more cool stuff. They separated, the feud uh, separated them, and they created hundreds of pages independent of each other. Claremont would go off to spin X-Men spin X off with the New Mutants. Dave Cockrum was now able to keep a monthly schedule and did years with Chris. Chris then follows up with Paul Smith. Again, John Byrne creates just volumes, omnibus upon omnibus on my shelf of work that he did post-X-Men that is excellent here. But I'm going to tell you where this stuff, you can tell it rubs. At the end, the interviewer in, uh, it's, it's Peter Sanderson again, the historian that, that he interviewed him in that comics journal from 1980. He is interviewing him here in the X-Men Companion published by Fantagraphics in 1982. Volume 2 has got the John Byrne, the lengthy interview, and he says, how would you like your stone on the X-Men to be revealed, to, to be remembered? And John says, well, I'd like to be remembered fondly about the only thing that's bothered me since I left X-Men are some of the references to Cockrum's back that gave the impression that Cockrum's issues were and then uh, that, that and gave the impression that there were Cockrum's issues and that there were three years of fill-ins by me. And now Dave's back again, Cockrum's back. I'd like to feel that my contribution was a little more than that. And if the success of the X-Men is indeed as strong as it seems to be, I'd like to think that I was a contributor to that and that perhaps some of it wouldn't be here if I hadn't done what I did. What wouldn't be there, I don't know. Maybe six readers in, in Arizona who wouldn't be reading because I, if I hadn't done this or that. I'd just like people to remember that I did it, basically. And the, the interviewer, Sanderson, says, oh, I think they're going to remember. And, 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 they, and, and John goes, I, I know. I just want to be missed. Laughter. End of interview. I'm bothered by the references to Dave Cockrum's back. That gave the impression that there were Cockrum issues and then it was three years of fill-ins and then Dave Cockrum is back again. So again, John Byrne, sore subject, X-Men. But that feud, I, I say we benefited from it. We benefited from two brilliant creators. And again, look at the fruit that John Byrne's tree born. Not only that, he would go on to do epic runs on the Hulk, rejuvenate Superman, um, John... John was a tour de force, much like Kirby. Not to slight Chris. Chris did some great stuff, but John had a flex in him, multiple flexes, like Kirby did. And uh, it was it was a wonder to behold. So welcome to the Comic Book Feud series. Uh, I have scratched the itch of all that is to come because these are rich. These are rich. They are fun. And I am going to have a blast discussing and parsing each and every one of them for you along the way. Thank you guys for listening to Rob's Observation. Here is the deal. I am going to uh, to, to to share with you uh, the, the reviews um, uh, that, that, that you guys um share with me. I read them at the end of each show and I'm so humbled um, by by the way that you guys uh, uh, 
uh, uh, share your enthusiasm. And I am going to read today from my good buddy, Mark J. Russell. Mark J. Russell. He, re he has left a review for me. And again, you guys, these reviews are so important. Thank you so much for reading them, for giving it a positive rating. It matters so much in getting this show um, more, 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 uh, more word of mouth, spreading it, g gaining new readers. This, this stuff matters. This uh, review from Mark J. Russell says, best comic podcast, best host. Thank you, Mark. He says, when I began reading comics over 30 years ago, my heroes were the characters in those magazines. When I discovered... Uh, when I discovered... Um, Rob Liefeld's work uh, on the New Mutants, it quickly became uh, my favorite, and I was a favorite of the man who created them. I, I favored the man who created them. With this podcast, Rob has reignited the passion he first introduced to me when I was a kid. As a lifelong comic book fan himself, Rob's excitement and enthusiasm for the medium is contagious. His reading recommendations are invaluable. As someone who has had such a lengthy and successful career in comics, his inside knowledge and stories have answered decades worth of questions that I have had about the comic book industry and introduced me to so many things that I was never aware of. Rob's Observations is not only my favorite comic-themed podcast, it is my favorite podcast Period. Wow. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you for that generous um, review. You guys keep them coming. I will read them at the end of every episode. It is so um, just, uh, it humbles me that you guys are listening and spreading the word and talking about the show and that it's um, part of your schedule. And that's why I am here and I am doing this. And I hope you enjoyed the blind item about the crazy lawsuit. And I hope you enjoyed part one of our comic book feuds. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking part. I am all over social media. I'm on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D with a blue check. It's long, but that's me. The whole name, I couldn't get Rob Liefeld, at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, blue check. Those denote that that is really me that you are talking with, not some of these phony accounts that exist. I'm all over Facebook. I'm all over social media. I love talking to you guys, interacting with you guys, answering your questions, uh, just 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 chatting comics and 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 listening to your input, giving input. It is such a blast. Thank you for interacting with me across all these different platforms. I will um, be back with another show before you know it, and you know the drill. You are going to take care of yourselves. You're going to stay safe and we are going to talk again real soon.